You're listening to the Galatians Spying Out Our Liberty in Christ series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Last night, um, yesterday afternoon actually, Tara was browsing Facebook and she came across a picture that, it was kind of a unique picture, it was a picture of a bear and a lion and a tiger and they were all together cuddling in this picture. And kind of a, a, a weird picture. I, I figured it was probably Photoshopped or something. So I didn't take the time to read the story. But later on, I thought, I'm going to look that up. That's kind of weird. I wonder if that's legit. And what I found out was that it is really a 400-pound tiger. The tiger's name is Shere Khan. And a 500-pound lion named Leo. And a 700-pound bear named Baloo. And these, they call them the BLT. And so these three, this pair, was found in a drug dealer's basement 13 years ago. And they were malnourished, and they were, they were fighting for their lives, but they were together. And just They'd grown up together since they were cubs. And so they, they took these into custody, and they took care of them. And now, 13 years later, they think they're brothers. I mean, they act like they're brothers. They, they apparently love each other as much as animals do. And the current owner said this, they said, they're definitely not the same color, they're not the same species, they're not even from the same country, and they love each other. They're brothers and they teach you how to love. And I think the reason that this story is fascinating, well, first of all, it's, it's so unique, but it, it is so unnatural, right? I mean, species and people, we tend to stick with our own. We tend not to branch out very much. And that is why I'm thankful that in the church of Jesus Christ and in our church this morning, there is diversity. There are people here from all walks of life. There are people here with different color skin. There are people here with different social classes and different religious backgrounds and from different places. It's, it's a wonderful place because what happens in the church is that there's something that breaks all of those barriers down. There is the gospel. There is Jesus Christ who unites us all together. And so though we may be different in our lives, though we come from different places and we live different lives, we are united in something that's so much stronger than all of that. We are united in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is a testimony to the power of the gospel. Because when you think about the world up to this point, and the world until Jesus comes back, it is racism and sexism and classism and and ageism and, and so many other terrible isms that are the cause of so much of the evil. Right? You look back at history and you look at the wars and you look at so much of the evil that is, has been done and even is being done right now. We're a little bit sheltered from this because we're in North America. But listen, around the world, this is a serious problem. Prejudice against other religions and other races and other groups of people. And you look at that and then you contrast that with what the church is supposed to be and what the church in many places is, where people from all over the place come together. It is a prominent issue in our day today, and it is a great testimony to the gospel when the church can gather together to love one another. And I say that this morning because I believe God designed the church to be different from the world. I believe that the, the gospel, the effects of the gospel, they, it goes down to all of these little issues, all of these little areas of our lives. Today what we're going to find in Galatians chapter 2 is that Paul is defending the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died on the cross. 
that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down, that he shed his blood because people are unrighteous, because people are sinners. And so when he's defending this gospel, he's saying, Jesus is the way. He is the only way. And Jesus is all you need. It's Jesus plus nothing. When you come to Jesus in faith, when you come to Christ in faith, when you, when you ask him to save you, when you repent of your sin, that's it, it. It's done. It's finished. He's defending this gospel, and as he's doing it, this issue comes up. He explains how we should view one another. And so what I want to discuss this morning is how we view each other. How do we view the poor? How do we view leadership? How do we view ourselves? I think we see that here in Galatians chapter 2. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the message. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the songs we've already sung that glorify how great you are, uh, that you are all we need. And Lord, I thank you for your word and, and for um, its trustworthiness, Lord, for its relevance to our lives. God, I pray that as we look at these verses this morning, your spirit would speak through what I say. Lord, I, I know that I'm frail, weak, sinful. Lord, there's nothing good in me that I can have to share with anybody here. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak through your word and that you would accomplish what I can't in the hearts of lives of your people. We love you, Father. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So far as we've gone through the book of Galatians, Paul's emphasis is clear. He's focusing on Galatians chapter 1, on defending the gospel. So he explains that the gospel is from God, that God is the source, that he is the authority behind it. And then he defines what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus coming to rescue sinners by the will of God and for the glory of God. Gospel in short form. And if you don't know what the gospel is, that is your first priority. That is what you need to know. More than anything else, we must know the gospel. Jesus has come to die for sinners by the will of God and for the glory of God. And so Paul defends that. He explains what it is. And then he defends his position as an apostle. And he does that by giving his testimony. And the purpose of his testimony is not to say, hey, look at I was so terrible and now I'm so wonderful. Paul's not drawing any attention to himself. The purpose of Paul's testimony is to say that this is, this is who I was. I was this, this sinful. I was willing to try and keep the law by disobeying the law and killing people in the process. And then God miraculously saved me. He met me on the road to Damascus. And then he gave me his gospel. And so he says it because he wants them to know that the gospel that he's preaching to them is the gospel that he received directly from God. See, in the churches of Galatia that Paul started, there has been an attack on the gospel. What people have tried to come in and do, they've tried to say, hey, listen, Paul gave you a part of the gospel. But he kind of he soft-pedaled it a little bit. He... he placated to what he thought you might want to know. And so he told you that you need to have faith in Jesus to go to heaven. He told you to, to be a Christian, you need to have faith. But he forgot this one little thing. Once you have faith in Jesus, you also have to keep the law of Moses. Right? So he's adding religion. He's adding our good deeds to the gospel. And so Paul is saying, listen, that's not the case. Christ saved me apart from anything I had done. In fact, I was against him. And after he did that, he showed me what the gospel was. It came directly from him. And so in chapter 2 this morning, his argument continues. Because now what the charge he's, he's dealing with is, is that people have come in and said that 
the apostles in Jerusalem and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem are preaching a different gospel. Well, if that's the case, if Paul is just this one lone guy and he has his own gospel and the whole church in Jerusalem has a different gospel, that's a big problem. And so Paul is dealing with that charge. And so we're going to read the first five verses of Galatians chapter 2 and then we'll focus on verses 6 to 10. First five verses say this, Then fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of the false brethren unawares brought in who came privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with me. So Paul says, I came to Jerusalem, I came to this little meeting, I took this man named Titus with me. Titus is a Greek. And the the result of it, after they met Titus, was that he was not compelled to be circumcised, which is a a good sign. They're saying, the leaders of Jerusalem are saying, listen, this man is a believer outside of the law. And then, he goes on to say that the problem that came up here was that they're false brethren, and their desire is to bring us, bring the people of Galatia, back into bondage. The bondage he's speaking about is the law. He wants to bring them back under the law. Now listen, the law, we, do, we, do we hate the law? No, we don't. The law was given by God. But the law was never given to save you. The law was given to show you that you need a savior. The law reveals who we are inside. It reveals our hearts. We go through the Ten Commandments. We go through the Old Testament law. And we see that we all fall short of that law. And so law is given so that we look at the law And we see, listen, God is perfect, he's holy, he's just. This this law is a reflection of a perfect character, and I fall so short of that. But once you know Christ, see, he's saying these people, they want to add the law to salvation. The law is not the cure, Jesus is the cure. But once you know Christ, the law still reveals to us who God is, doesn't it? The law still reveals the holiness of God, and God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And so, prior to salvation, the law shows us we're not good enough. It shows us we fall short. Once we're saved, the law shows us how good God is, and the law shows us who we should try and be to be like him, to please him. Okay, But it, it never saves us, and as soon as we add the law to salvation, we've, we've lost salvation, we've lost the gospel. Then in verse 6, So here we find everything's going well, right? They don't compel him to be circumcised. It seems like they're on Paul's team. Then Paul says this, and it's kind of a strange thing for him to say at this point. He says, but of these who seem to be somewhat, who's he talking about? The leaders of the church of Jerusalem. He's talking about, we'll find out in verse 9. It's John, Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, and James, Lord's half-brother. These who seem to be somewhat Whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepts no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. It's like Paul, it's, it's going so well. They're on your team. Why are you now saying, well, those people who have a reputation, they're, they're acknowledged by the church as the leadership of the church. 
they added nothing to me. I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me really what they say because I know what I got was from God. God accepts no man's person. Why would you do that, Paul? They're on your side. They're on your team. Hey, they, they agree with you. Uh, a little while back, um, Miles got in trouble for something and his response was, well, Spencer told me to do it. It's Miles is five, Spencer's three. <laughs> you realize, Miles, that Spencer has absolutely no authority to tell you to do anything. Okay, so it doesn't matter. But in this case, it's completely different. In this case, these false teachers are coming in and they're saying that the apostles in Jerusalem have a different gospel. And Paul tells the story and says, listen, they don't have a different gospel. We have the same gospel, but if they did have a different gospel, it wouldn't matter. I wouldn't care. Why? Because God doesn't accept their person. They have no authority in themselves other than when they're preaching the word of God. And so if they disagreed with me, it wouldn't matter because what I got was from God. And he's making this point on purpose because what we'll find out in verses 11 to 16, if, if mankind starts putting stock on in, in leadership of man, if we start looking to men to be our authority and men to be our leaders, okay, to give us truth, to give us doctrine, men will always fail. And in verses 11 to 16, Peter fails. And so if, if, it's, if it's Peter we're looking to, we're in trouble. But if we're looking to the gospel that comes from God, we're not in trouble, right? Didn't Paul say in, in Galatians chapter 1, he talked about if anybody gives you any gospel other than the one we've preached, even if we give you another gospel or an angel from heaven gives you another gospel, let him be accursed. Why? Because there is one, only one gospel. There's only one God. And, and what God says is true is all that matters. What I say is true, what Pastor Dresser says is true, what the Pope says is true, what any other man says is true, it doesn't matter unless it's from God. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, these men, they agreed with me, but it doesn't matter. God doesn't accept, he doesn't acknowledge anybody else's authority, anybody else's person. It's all about God. So that's verse 6. Verse 7. But contrary-wise, so, so on the contrary, it, they didn't add anything to me. They didn't help me out. They didn't increase my understanding. They didn't change what I believed. On the contrary, when they saw that the gospel of circumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of circumcision, the same was mighty in me towards the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go to the heathen and they to the circumcision. So on the contrary, they didn't add anything to me. They didn't change what I believed. On the contrary, when they saw that the gospel of circumcision, of uncircumcision was given to me as the gospel of circumcision was to Peter, they gave us the right hands of fellowship. They agreed with what we were doing. Now, in the King James, just the way that that's written, it almost seems like there might be two Gospels there, right? If the Gospel for the Jews and the Gospel for the Gentiles. But that's not the case. It, what, what this text is saying in the Greek, it, what, what it's saying is, there's the Gospel, there's one Gospel. Peter's job was to bring it to the, Jew, to the Jews primarily. Paul's job was primarily to bring it to the Gentiles. Okay? It, it was the same Gospel, same truth, but we understand this. 
if I'm giving a message to a different group of people, I might need to change my method of delivery of that message in order to make sure they understand that message properly, right? So if I'm going to give the gospel to a child, I'm probably going to give the gospel differently than if I'm talking to an adult. True? Throughout the book of Acts, when Paul is giving the gospel to the Jews, what he does is he constantly points them back to the Old Testament because they know the Old Testament. He shows them the verses and the prophecies and all those things that pointed to Jesus Christ, their Savior. But when he's speaking to the Gentiles, he doesn't do that. When he's speaking to Gentiles, he explains the God of creation. And he references the Old Testament, but he doesn't quote it, and they don't know he is. He just explains, this is who God is, and this is what God has done, and this is who Jesus is, this is what he's done. And so when he's giving the gospel to different people, same message, but delivered in a different way. And so he's saying, Peter has the gospel to the Jews, primarily, Paul to the Gentiles primarily, but it is one gospel, one God, one spirit, one message. It's the same message, and that can't ever change. And so what they do, rather than adding to Paul, is that they give him the right hand of fellowship. And we can picture what this looks like, right? This is, this is them extending their hand saying, listen, we're with you. We're on your team. We agree with you. We want you to succeed in your, in your mission. This is what happens here. And so we see all these four men together agreeing on the gospel. In verse 10, they do give him one, one additional thing to remember. It's, it's not really a new thing, but it's, a, it's kind of a qualification. Like while you're bringing this gospel, there's one thing we want you to remember to do. In verse 10, they say, Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I was also forward to do. Paul says there's one thing they wanted me to remember. Shouldn't forget the poor. Don't forget the poor among you. But Paul says, that's great. That's good news because I was eager. I was forward. I was excited about doing that. I was already planning to do that. In fact, Paul has already brought a gift to the church of Jerusalem of of money to take care of the poor because during this time, there was a great famine in Jerusalem. And so Paul is doing that. But it's important for us to know because they're having this, this really serious conversation, right, about what the gospel is. And he says, hey, there's one thing that while you're bringing the gospel to the people you're, that God has he's, he's gifted you and empowered you to bring them to, don't forget to take care of the poor. It's a good reminder for us. And so as I was reading these verses this week and over the last couple weeks, um, I realized that a lot of what's going on here is that we're being taught by the gospel how we should be viewing one another. How do we view other people? How do we view those who are leaders? How do we view those who are poor? How do we view ourselves? I think how we view people determines how we live and how we treat them. And so what an important question. And I think these verses kind of reveal to us a little bit of how we should do that. The first thing is this. We must view leadership as under the authority of God. We must view leadership as under the authority of God. Galatians 2.6 says, But of those who seem to be somewhat, who whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepts no man's person, for they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Those who seem to be somewhat are James and Peter and John. Can I tell you something? In this passage, we have... Outside of Jesus Christ, the four most important people in all of church history. 
I mean, you might say, well, Augustine was pretty important. Yeah, he's a pretty smart guy, great theologian. Maybe Calvin or maybe Luther. Listen, all of those guys were pointing back to these four men. Peter, Paul, James, and John. You think about what they contributed to the church. You got James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the church of Jerusalem, which at the time was the most important church. I mean, it was the church, it was the ground zero of Christianity. Christ dies on the cross, Christianity begins in Jerusalem, and it goes out from Jerusalem to the world. We're still in the earlier stages of the church. And so when we look back to the leadership of the church at this time, many of those apostles are still here in Jerusalem, and James is their pastor. Pretty important guy. He writes the book of James. And then you have John. And John is the beloved apostle. He's the one who wrote, wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation. So contributed many writings to the church. He was the longest living apostle. Another wonderful man who contributed so much to the church. And then you have Peter. And Peter is the spokesman of the apostles. He wrote 1st and 2nd Peter. He is the one we know most about and probably the one that we can identify with. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's always doing and saying the wrong things at the wrong times. But here's Peter, a wonderful leader in the church. And then Paul, who writes, I don't even list them, that he writes 13 or 14 books. He might have written Hebrews. But among these guys, you have 21 to 22 of the, of the 27 New Testament books that were written. I mean, outside of these guys, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and maybe another writer in the book of Hebrews, maybe not. That's, that's the only people who wrote outside of these guys. Now, I'm saying that because I want you to understand that if there was anybody whose person should be accepted by God, it would be one of these four men. If anybody was a great servant, did much for God, so much that he could merit anything, merit any kind of authority or any kind of grace or any kind of love, it'd be these men. And what does Paul say? He says, God accepts no man's person. These three guys that I'm referring to, and myself included, we have nothing to contribute to God. That it's all of God, all of God's plan, all of God's power, all of God's gospel. It's not ours. And so, with that in mind, how does that teach us how we should view leaders today? You think about leaders in the church, how do, we, how do we view leadership? Another video came across my desk. I don't spend all my time watching videos or on Facebook, I promise. <laughs> but... Uh, I saw a video this week of, um, it was Joel Osteen, and he was on Oprah, and he was leading the audience in I Declares. Do you know what, have you heard of those? It's where you declare something to be true about yourself, and then it, it magically becomes true. This is what he teaches. Um, and so he leads this, he gets everybody to stand up, and he says, I declare that I am strong, that I am beautiful, that I have a great future in front of me that I am victorious, and everybody else says back to them, I am victorious, I am... And, and I was thinking about that, I'm thinking, he is declaring to a group of people he does not know their spiritual state. He doesn't know... This is, I mean, we're not even in a church, and even in a church you could not have everybody say this for sure, right? And he's declaring to them that they are victorious. And if they say it themselves, they will be victorious. Well, here's the thing. If you don't know Christ your Savior... That's not true, right? I mean, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, how could we be victorious? We're sinners lost in our sin. Jesus is Savior. The only victory that matters is the one he accomplished on the cross. 
But even if you're saved, you're still not victorious. You're victorious in him. So if you want to declare anything, I am in Christ. I am victorious in him. Christ has had the victory for me. And I say that because, listen, you look at Joel Osteen, you say, he's got a great smile. He does. It's awesome. He's got a winning personality. I wish I could speak like he does, and I wish I had some of the gifting that he has. He has a huge church and a huge ministry and a huge level of influence. And so you might say, well, look at this guy. If there's anybody in our day today we should look at, it's somebody like Joel Osteen. You know what Paul says? Remember what Paul says? Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you to the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there's some, there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's, that's Paul's take on anybody who preaches another gospel, himself included, angels included. So how do we view that? We view it through the lens of Scripture. We view Scripture as our authority, and then we say, is what that man teaching in line with what the Bible says? And when the answer is no, then we stop listening. Right? So then how do we view somebody like John MacArthur or Alistair Begg? Those are two of my favorite favorite preachers, favorite theologians that are alive today. How do we view somebody that, that tries, attempts, in their, does their best to faithfully exposit the Scripture? For my graduation last week, this church gave me a MacArthur commentary set. It's like 30 huge volumes on the whole New Testament. It took him 40 years to compile. So what do I do with those books? Do I read them and say, okay, well, that's true. That's, yeah, I should just follow that. Or do I throw them in the garbage because um, we're not supposed to look at other men to be authority? I think this, is, this will help us. Because Paul was willing to sit down with them, right? And it's not like Paul didn't have any kind of respect for those people. And so if I was reading John MacArthur and he said something that I was like, hey, I haven't heard that before, then because I know that he's a man of God who attempts to exposit Scripture truly, then I would look into it. Then I would take the time to study it out scripturally. I would not accept it at face value just because John MacArthur said it. As soon as I do that, then I've given him the authority and not the Scripture. But I would say, listen, I respect him, and so I will look into that because I respect him and, and see if it lines up truly with Scripture. And, I, and you say, well, John MacArthur, I don't, I don't even know who he is. Maybe some of you don't know who he is. That's fine. But you do have Pastor Dressler here. And you do have uh, me, and you do have other, two other elders, Stan and Greg Manning. And so what do you do with those people's authority? And I would say it's the same, same kind of thing. When you hear something preached, we do our best to preach from the Word of God. We really do. I, I don't want it to be my message, and I know Pastor feels the same way. He never wants it to be his message. He wants it to be the Word of God that's preached. But he and I are fallible men. We are not perfect. There's not a, a person on the earth that has perfect doctrine. And so what you do is you look into Scripture, see if what we say is true, and if it is, then be obedient to Scripture. And if it's not, then don't. Now, I hope that we've earned enough respect from you that you would be willing to look into it. If, if something was said that was different than what you thought, you'd say, you know what, I'll look into that further. But if it doesn't line up with Scripture, you are under no obligation to obey it. Okay? So that's how we view leadership as under the authority of God. 
Number two, view the poor as cared for by God. First, we have how we should view leadership. This is how we look to those that are they're, they're called pillars in the church, the teachers of the church. Now, how do we view those who are maybe at a lower class? Those who are struggling, those who are having difficulty, those who cannot give anything to you. Verse 10 says, Only they would that we should remember the poor the same which I was also forward to do. In this whole discussion that is not centered around the poor, they say, make sure you remember the poor. That's the thing that I was excited to do. There are many philosophies and methodologies as how we should best care for the poor in our society. Uh, there are probably a lot of people here with different ideas on how we should run social programs or if we should have social programs, if welfare is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm sure if we were doing a political debate today, we'd have a lot of different opinions. But here is, I'm not interested in political opinions this morning. What I'm trying to say is, if you're a believer in Christ, you have a responsibility to the poor. Now, rather than fighting about how you think that should be done on a, on a grand scale, why don't we think about how we can do that in our lives? How, if Paul, who had the most important message that the world has ever heard, was going around to the entire world, or much of the world at that time, delivering that message, and he had to remember the poor, how can we do that in our lives? That's the question, because we ought to do it. Um, why is this the case? Why, why is it so important for us? I think it's important for us because we, we need to remember that God is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. He does not have more love for the rich than he does for the poor. He's got no love for a certain group of people over another group of people just because that's who they are. When God looks down from heaven, he's not seeing classes. He's seeing sinners. Sinners who are saved by grace and sinners who are not saved. That's, those are the two categories God has for human beings. And so we should, we should love the poor and care for the poor and do what we can for the poor. Why? Because God loves them and God cares for them. I was just thinking really quickly um, of Jesus' ministry. And I thought about who he ministered to. And if you think about Jesus' ministry and who he spent all of his time with or most of his time with, it was with the outcasts of society. It was with the unlovely. Um, I'm going to read a couple verses and you'll know exactly the story I'm talking about as soon as I start reading it. Uh, John 8.10 when Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You know the story, right? Woman caught in adultery. What did the Jews want to do to her? Stone her to death. Jesus picks her up, loves her, and then says, Go and sin no more. Mark 1.40 and there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. Here's a leper that comes to Jesus. Lepers are, are cast out of the city. Hey, no more job, no more family, no more friends. You're, you're an outcast. And Jesus touches him. The last thing you would ever do with a leper touches him and makes him clean. 
Matthew 19, 14. But Jesus said, Suffer the little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. The children. Are they important? Are they Well, I mean, in that society, not really. But Jesus says, let them come to me. John 4, 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest a drink of me, which is a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Jesus and the woman of Samaria. Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. We don't have a relationship today in our society to describe the hatred that they had toward one another. And Jesus goes to a woman of Samaria, and he asks to drink from her cup. And then he shows her who he is, despite the fact that she's a sinner, despite the fact that she's had five husbands. that, That doesn't matter. What matters to Jesus is that she's a lost soul who needs him. Luke 19.5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He had sold out his people to the Roman government. He was now taking money from his own people and giving it to those who were ruling over them. And he was hated. He was rich, but he was hated. And Jesus comes to him and says, I want to eat at your house. Matthew 9.20, And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years and came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Did you get the idea? Now it's a woman who has a disease. And, and like all of the people that society had no time for, all of the people that were outcasts, those are the people that Jesus ministered to. Those are the people that Jesus cared for. And so, what must we do in our lives? I don't, I don't care about your religious or your political views. I care about, as we bring the gospel to the people, we must not forget the poor. We must not forget to take care of the poor. I, I, listen, I know that some Christians are scared of a social gospel. I am scared of that too. Social gospel is where you, you, you take care of people's social, physical needs, and you forget their spiritual needs. We can never do that. The greatest need of any person is the gospel. And so that can't, we can never lose that message. But we can't forget to take care of the poor. Show love. That's what Jesus did, and that's his heart for people. In Matthew 25, 40, Jesus said, Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these my brethren, you've done it unto me. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to heal those who needed a physician. That is each one of us. That is people in our society. And so let's not forget to care for them. Finally, number three, we must view ourselves in the service of God and in need of his power. Did you notice in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, he says, the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. Who committed that gospel? It was God, right? And so what he's saying here is, I'm not even on my own mission. What I am doing was given to me by God. I am just a servant. I am just a slave. So how do we understand ourselves in light of that? 
We have been commissioned by God. It's been, this same gospel is committed to Paul, is now committed to us to go share with people. If you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, read Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to be, so that we will be witnesses all over the place. He is empowering us for that. And so, the gospel that was committed to Paul was committed to Peter. It's not their message. And then he says in verse 8, For he that wrought effectually, and that word effectually is energeo. It is energetically. It is uh, in a way that was powerful. So it, it is God who worked powerfully, mightily, in the life of Paul and in the life of Peter, so that the gospel would actually go forth and produce results. So what is that? How do we view ourselves then? Well, first we view ourselves as servants who have been committed the gospel. The second thing we do is we view ourselves as, as, as people who need the power of God to work in our lives for anything good to be accomplished. Okay? Unless God is effectually working through our lives, nothing will ever be done. So we need God and we've been commissioned by God. And so that is how we view ourselves. He is the power behind everything that we do for the gospel. He is the one who produces the results. Our perspectives on ourselves and those around us determine how we live. As believers, we must allow God to shape those perspectives. We must view leaders as under the authority of God. We must make sure that what people say that we believe lines up with Scripture. If you don't have truth, what do you have? And then we must view the poor as cared for by God. And we must care for them as well. We must view ourselves as servants in desperate need of God's power. That's how we view people around us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gospel. Lord, I thank you for what Paul is teaching us this, this morning, that there is no respect of persons with God, that there is nobody with intrinsic authority um, that is greater than your word, Lord, that every person that God has placed in authority is, is under his word, and Lord, that we should biblically discern the messages we hear from our culture, from our leaders in churches, from from our own leaders here at Maple City. Lord, I pray that we would practice biblical discernment. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to remember that as we go out to obey the commission you've given to us, that we ought to remember the poor, to take care of those around us who can't give anything back to us or those who are suffering and in need. Help us to give freely from what you've given to us. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to remember that you have sent us on a mission, you've empowered us for it, Now we must go out and obey. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.